Hello and welcome to the world of intelligence. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. Hi, it's Mark Wilson of the Janes Intelligence Unit, and today we're speaking to John Gray, an expert in the fascinating fields of misinformation, disinformation, and influence operations. John's also the co-founder of MentionWap, which is a fantastic tool for OSINT investigations. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to be here. So, John, I know you focused on understanding the activities of hostile state actors and proxies in the information space. For the benefit of the audience, could you give us a, an intro to your work more generally and just tell us how did you get involved in this fascinating area in the first place? I usually preface it with the uh, line from the old Grateful Dead song, Truckin', uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, <laughs> I guess I trace a little bit of this, you know, back to being a guy that, you know, don't want to age myself too much, but um, I have a foot firmly in the old analog world. And I, I quipped that when I actually started my uh, university degree, um, Marshall McLuhan was still alive. And when I finished my uh, communications degree, Neil Postman had just published amusing ourselves to death. So I sort of, I guess I frame this with, 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 uh, you know, coming at this from, you know, communications theory and just, you know, uh, an interest as I, as I matured, um, you know, in, in communications, information technologies and that combined with this bookworm nerdy, unquenching curiosity, I think really did kind of get me here. And so, you know, really where the jumping off point to get into this space was, um, you know, 2016 had a sense some funny things were going on uh, in the information space. And, um, you know, at the time I asked my co-founder to sort of drop everything he was doing in terms of what we're developing and thinking we might be able to pull off with our network visualization tool for um, looking at Twitter in a, in a unique light. Um, I suggested, right. hey, let's plug this bot detection algorithm in and see what we see. And that was really sort of the point, you know, a week before the 2017 uh, presidential, U.S. presidential inauguration. It's like uh, suddenly I have this prototype and now I'm looking at these hashtags and conversations uh, on Twitter in a whole new light. And that's what really started pushing me into into the space of uh, of asking myself, well, what am I seeing? Why am I seeing it? Why should we care? And, you know, for a long time in terms of a business, I mean, you know, knew that there was, you know, obviously some sketchy things happening on not just Twitter, but, you know, a number of platforms. But, you know, I always I've said, well, there was no business model in my books and in, in, in looking at bots related to pushing porn pills and point spreads. Um, so yeah. it really wasn't until the aftermath of that um, 2016 election that, you know, I thought that, hey, let's look a little bit more at this sort of synthetic behavior and, and and thinking about how bots are operating on Twitter. And then uh, yeah. since then, you know, it's been really an evolution in terms of, you know, expanding the view of the, of the problem beyond bots, beyond Twitter, and, you know, really looking at it from a much broader perspective. So mention, mention that really was something that kind of grew out from your observations around what was going on in 2016 around the U.S. election. and Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in all fairness, I mean, we actually, you know, the first version of MentionMap was pushed out to the Internet in uh, the fall of 2009. Right. We had a friend and partner back then who, you know, had his own 
essentially toolkit of graph data visualization tools. And, you know, he was one of those guys that, you know, took a long weekend and just for the fun of it, bodied, um, see how things would look, uh, plugging the Twitter API into it. You know, so I guess I'd argue that, you know, we had one of the, you know, really early, um, data visualization tools built on top of Twitter. Um, and then, it, you know, it was this process of, you know, well, what do we have? You know, yeah, it's cool. Um, but what do we have? And so I've said, you know, numerous times over the years to my co-founder that, yeah, you know, we're going to be 10 year overnight success stories. Um, I mean, we've hit the 10 year mark. We've passed it. Um, and I really don't know if I'll claim in terms of the, the success, but we've, I think we've found ourselves into an interesting place. And like I said, we've, we've really tried to use it as a ultimately taking, you know, the, we have a public facing version, which as you know, I know, you know, Mark, uh, you know, you've used in some of your research. Thank you. Sure. And, you know, we keep that out sort of now as a, you know, sort of this public utility, but we've really backed off trying to figure out how to, how to monetize the tool itself. Um, in fact, it's, um, completely free, um, now. We just, uh, like I said, um, keeping out there. We've built things for ourselves that, you know, over this last few years, um, sort of has fed our own curiosity and our own needs in terms of doing research. Um, and, you know, these are tools that we just use internally that have, you know, sort of informed us moving forward and helped with our own own research and you know we don't really have any intention of uh, you know commercializing or trying to figure out how to monetize monetize that sure so for someone out there who is, who is kind of a, a complete beginner so to speak to the OSINT mm. world or the online uh, the world of online research what does mention map do in, in really basic terms you know, in terms of looking at a Twitter conversation, I really say it's, you know, who's talking about who, who's talking about what. So, I mean, you can search a specific profile or you can search a specific hashtag and, uh, you know, the tool essentially renders those relationships around um, the profiles that have mentioned a given. So if we looked at the at Jane's Twitter profile, um, it would render the five, uh, you know, as soon as you open up the application, it would render the five profiles that have mentioned at Jane's intelligence the most. Um, if we were to look at a hashtag, same idea it would um, highlight and illustrate the most active uh, profiles around that uh, specific hashtag. We have limitations. I mean, we aren't pulling data from the, you know, Twitter firehose. This is just coming straight from the, you know, Twitter API. So it's not all inclusive. It looks at the last 200 tweets of a given profile or the last 200 tweets of a given um, hashtag. So there's definitely limitations, but it's a really interesting way to look at those um, connections from a number of different angles. And, uh, you know, it, it just really depends, I think, on the use case. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah. I know, you know, like I said, Mark, you know, you looked at some interesting things related to the Philippines and, and Papua New Guinea. And, you know, I, I think as yeah. somebody that's a researcher yourself, you know, you're well suited to talk about how you've, you know, been able to leverage uh, using the tool. Yeah, I mean, from my experience, John, I mean, it's, it's just been a fantastic tool for getting that snapshot of a, a Twitter user's immediate network. Like you say, it's not the entire whole picture but it does give you that that snapshot and also the other interesting part of it is it brings in related hashtags to to the conversations that you're interested in right so i've always found you know there's nothing to to stop me then taking that hashtag and then going looking for more mm-hmm. information on that hashtag either in in mention map or on on twitter yep. itself so yeah for some of our online investigations it's really been a indispensable tool so 
A great job on that one, John. Thanks, Mark. You know, like I said, I'm one of these guys that's sort of always been a real visual learner and, you know, uh, versus, you know, scrolling through countless um, columns and rows in a spreadsheet. Um, it, it certainly represents those relationships in a real, I think, valuable fashion, you know, for researchers uh, like you and I. It does. So, John, just wanted to bring you back yeah. to the, the issue or story of disinformation. And mm-hmm. yeah. As we know, alleged Russian interference in elections is never far from from headlines. Of course, this week we've had uh, the release of the UK parliamentary report that basically said Russian influence in the UK is now the the new normal, uh, so to speak. Now, I know from your perspective, you've been on the front lines, so to speak, of tracking Russian disinformation campaigns on Twitter. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of those who are conducting online investigations themselves, might be listening to the Mm -hmm. podcast, I mean, how does one even start in terms of beginning to track this type of activity? I mean, could you walk us through how you've done that in the past, maybe, and and what results you got out of it? Yeah, and and I think, you know, what's really important, well, I mean, as we continue through this conversation, that I think that we've got to recognize that one of the reasons that Twitter gets a lot of attention is that the data's there. We can access data, we can look at data, and I think this is one of my problems with some of this conversation now, is that there's this real, in essence, you know, desert of of social social data. And so as a result of their accessible API, I think there's a disproportionate amount of attention paid to Twitter, you know, when we talk about disinformation and, and foreign interference, um, you know, I think we really have to expand our perspective of this ecosystem. Not everybody's on Twitter. Not every conversation is happening on Twitter. And but, you know, for purpose of this is, you know, again, uh, you know, for me is I started down this path because we had this tool and I really looked at this as an opportunity to sort of inform how uh, you know, I've gotten to this point of seeing disinformation and, and certainly, you know, uh, in all fairness, you know, since 2016, in essence, you know, the Russian playbook, the Russian conversation has been out there. But and we'll talk about this some more as we move forward. But, you know, they're certainly not the only game in town these days either. Sure. But, um, yeah. yeah, you know, in light of obviously, um you know, the report that just uh, was published, you know, uh, in the UK, which, you know, I, I took a, a little breeze of the, of the 20 pages. A few things definitely stood out. So in terms of the work that we've done, you know, I, you know, I, I felt like one of the efforts um, I teamed up with uh, Sarah Oates, professor at the University of Maryland. Um, you know, we initially met at Miss Infocon in Washington, D.C. back in the summer of 2018, hit it off and thought, hey, let's do some research. Uh, Sarah's got a good number of years of experience um, studying uh, you know, Russian media, Russian strategic narratives and Really where we came at this, what we were interested in is looking at a relationship between what we thought of as a, you know, a strategic narrative alignment of a specific hashtag. And so we went through a process and we, um, you know, we identified four um, hashtags. Uh, one of them in particular that you know, really helped uh, the research and the interest was um, uh, hashtag MH17. And we had three other hashtags that we uh, tagged along with that. And, and so we gathered, you know, uh, you know, data over about a five week period, essentially all the profiles that were involved in sort of that conversation with what we could gather in terms of our um, you know data that we were pulling uh, related to using that hashtag 
you know, those particular hashtags in particular MH17. And then from there, we, you know, we really looked at it through a sense of uh, sort of that volumetric perspective is um, who are the loudest, <laughs> who are the loudest voices um, in this conversation? And, and with everything, you know, look, um, I'm quick to admit this was research that had a certain amount of limitations. A little bit was just our own tool set. A little bit of it is related to the actual volume of data that you can pull. But it was interesting enough that um, with Sarah's experience and with our re- with with the data that we pulled and how we looked at it, we did get the paper uh, you know accepted by the American Political Science Association. We delivered that co-published paper um, last August and felt really good about that. So. You know, really what we found was, you know, looking at it, breaking it down in terms of using the old DFR lab. And thank you, Ben Nimmo and, and the team there. I have to pay great homage to the work um, that team has done over the years. But you know, we looked at it through the lens of um, a fairly high percentage of profiles um, fell in that category. I call them cyborgs, um, you know, sort of that synthetic um, behavior, the part human, part machine um, right. versus, you know, trying to, uh, you know, uh, identify them purely as bots. So, you know, our, our, our sort of jumping off point were, were these profiles that were tweeting consistently, you know, a daily average of, you know, 72 plus tweets per day. And again, what we found was a fairly high percentage of profiles, you know, and that's pretty suspicious activity. I don't know you, Mark. I mean, I'm a bit of a Twitter guy, but um, I don't, Tweet in the hundreds, the realm of hundred times a day. You know, I've, I've I've often suggested those are profiles that should at least have a you know sponsored by Red Bull sticker um, you know, next to them. But it was, you know, again, it, it was just one one way to sort of slice and dice through the data that we had and to look at um, you know the participants in these specific conversations that we felt were you know very much aligned to what we would consider you know a, a you know a Russian strategic narrative. It's interesting you mentioned the bots or automated activity on, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. In your experience, how much is automated activity part of the disinformation landscape? I mean, a lot is made of the role of bots, isn't it? But mm-hmm. are we right to focus so much on bots? Are, in your experience, are disinformation campaigns a bit more nuanced than that these days? Yeah, I, you know, I think that not to dismiss it, um, I think that, you know, we have an evolving space. Obviously, there's way more tools, way more people that have kind of moved into being, you know, bot hunters per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that in some regards, by looking too much at bots, we're not asking what is sort of the, you know, intended behavior, you know, in terms of how the actors are, are, are acting. I mean, not every bot is a bad bot. Not every no. bot that shows up in a given conversation is necessarily a bad actor. Um, and the other thing is too, is that now, you know, I, I I think essentially that they're cheap and disposable assets. You know, so if you're running a campaign, in some regards, they're, like I said, they're cheap, they're disposable. And, and then when you get people chasing after them and, and making them maybe a bigger deal than they are, in some ways, they're an excellent tool for, you know, misdirection. If we're chasing what we think is all this programmatic automated behavior on Twitter, what aren't we looking at? What aren't mm-hmm. we seeing? And, you know, I think I just kind of wanted to circle back and one of the things that you know, I was looking at, you know, this is post sort of our paper that we published. And 
I continue to gather data and look in particular, I, I find the MH17 is a particularly uh, you know, rich vein of information. But I started looking at it as like, how is Twitter actually paying, playing this role as sort of like this connective tissue of directing the audience places, it's not the specific tweets. It's now starting to dig into, you know, let's look a little bit more about, you know, what some of these links are and where they're going. And so like a great example is, you know, back in late March is um, found, you know, a lot of activity pushing people towards uh, Bonanza Media. And uh, it was interesting that Bonanza Media was, you know, claim to be a platform for independent journalists. But mm-hmm. if we look deeper and you look at some of the um, conspiracy around what they were um, uh, parading in the connection of one of the founders to um, to RT, um, it was, mm-hmm. you know, again, a, a really interesting uh, a, a approach to using Twitter. And it, like I said, sort of as that, um, you know, connective tissue of, of being able to move an audience in, in another direction and, mm-hmm. and influence that conversation. And, you know, if you didn't know any better, um, you know, some of the headlines might have been fairly compelling to um, possibly reconsider how one was viewing that conversation. Um, and then the other thing is, too, is that you know, and I've mentioned this to you before, Mark, is that another thing I think that we miss out on by focusing so much on, you know, chasing bots and hunting bots is that um, we can't dismiss that, you know, there's a function of what I uh, have done some research on is looking at the relationship of, of low volume yeah. under the radar profiles. Well curated, you know, they aren't operating where they might fall afoul of terms of service. But if you string together a few hundred of these profiles and look at their feeds in terms of the consistency of the type of narratives that they're sharing, it makes it really difficult not to look at those and go, hmm, on their own, you probably wouldn't think much of that particular profile. But like I said, if you start pasting together a few hundred of them and start looking at the real similar um, behavior, one has to wonder that maybe we're <laughs> missing some other behaviors by focusing too much on the high volume and the automated profiles in the conversations. That's fascinating. I mean, would you say, John, that um, those low volume, maybe cyborg accounts and mixtures between sometimes mixtures between automated and human activity, but nevertheless low volume. Do you think that's a reaction to the attention that bot like accounts have got? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, a big part of my hypothesis around this type of behavior. And uh, I've often thought, you know, maybe what we need to do is start creating sort of some asset class modeling is, you know, mm-hmm. if we see the pure bots that are a whole collection of them, you know, spun up on the same day within minutes of each other. And they have all those same fingerprints that move into a conversation early that are, you know, clearly trying to, uh, you know, amplify and manipulate engagement metrics, but often are, you know, quickly spotted and then, you know, quickly deplatformed. You know, like I said, those would sort of fall into that, you know, cheap, easy, disposable asset. But if I'm operating with well-curated, well-established, low-volume profiles, I think those could be deemed, uh, you know, a different type of asset. And I would probably suggest a pretty valuable asset. So um, as you've already alluded to, John, uh, earlier in our chat, in terms of conversations around disinformation, misinformation and, and all that, that type of stuff, 
in conversations around that, the mass popularity platforms, they always appear to feature quite heavily in, in conversations yeah. on that type of topic, doesn't, doesn't it? You know, the Facebooks and the yeah. Twitters of this world, yeah. et cetera. But just thinking beyond those platforms, I mean, have you come across this type of activity taking place on more obscure yeah. corners of the web? Yeah, I mean, without question, you know, and I think I look at this as, as really an ecosystem, right? If we restrict our conversation of looking at this strictly through the lens of, you know, oh, look, it's more than just the atoms, right? You know, like you collect up all the atoms and then we have something bigger. So, you know, I think we do need to see this in terms of, you know, it's not just a bot. It's not just a Facebook post or, you know, or a YouTube video. I ask myself at times, like, what's the broader strategy at play? And so uh, I've certainly seen and experienced and, and researching with some of the work I'm doing right now is looking through this as how many other places are these stories? Is this content? Are these narratives showing up? You know, I mean, you know, we've seen through, for instance, some of the recent, you know, they published it through Graphica and, and, and a team effort, you know, the secondary infection, which, you know, DFR lab again had a hand in, in looking at. And, and you know, so the use of um, places like Quora, Medium, you know, we know there's things going on on the chans. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I certainly have, as I mentioned to you before we started the conversation, um, you know, there's a few places on, uh, you know, Reddit that I generally go have a visit to uh, on, on a daily basis to yeah. see what's going on. So, yeah, I, I think it's really, really important that we start evolving this conversation to, you know, have a more holistic view uh, of the problem of, you know, looking at the information space as more than just simply a social media thing. I mean, without question, I'm not trying to dismiss obviously sure. what's going on on Facebook. I mean, the pure size of that platform, you know, dictates we, we have to have that as part of it. But again, it's not the only um, platform in town. And, you know, ask ourselves, you know, a lot of us are on LinkedIn. You know, often I say, how come LinkedIn always seems to get a pass? There's a lot of social engineering <laughs> going on on LinkedIn. Um, there are news, you know, LinkedIn itself is also a news feed. But again, I'll, I'll keep beating my drum. Let, let's expand how we're looking at this problem, because it's one of those things is like sort of I use that analogy, right? If we're putting pollution into the ecosystem, if we're just looking at one profile or one post, you know, we're looking at a little bit of the exhaust. But when we start looking at it through a broader, a more you know, holistic ecosystem of the information space, you know, suddenly, you know, that's a lot of exhaust, right? Yeah. And yeah. now we have a real pollution problem. And so, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of my story, and I'm sticking to it, Mark. <laughs> Excellent. You mentioned the uh, Facebook job, didn't you? I mean, I, I know in the past you've uh, contributed to uh, Reuters' investigation into hate speech on Facebook. It was directed at Myanmar's Rohingya minority. In your experience, maybe in relation to that project or other projects you've done, have you found any connections between some of the algorithms of social media platforms and the amplification of disinformation? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not going to pretend to be an algorithmic expert. There's a, you know, no shortage of some amazing (laughs) people uh, lending, uh, lending some really thoughtful perspective to these conversations. But, you know, I mean, if we think about it just, you know, from, uh, from a business model perspective, 
you know, and harvesting our attention. What are these platforms? I mean, they're advertising platforms. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's engagement, it's time on site, it's selling ads. And so if these platforms have been created for that purpose, and if we start looking at Facebook's last quarterly earnings, um, you've got to figure they're pretty good at delivering results for their clients. And so, yeah, I mean, without question, we, you know, we have to believe that the algorithms play a really important role because, you know, the algorithms looking at through engagement and the algorithm, I don't believe is really looking often at times as to, you know, sort of the actual content itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that really comes down to needing more, you know, humans uh, involved in, in, in assessing. And, you know, I mean, one of the things, and it was, you know, yeah, it was a great opportunity to work with Steve um, Stecklow at, at Reuters and, and go through their process. And, you know, that was a pretty massive 10 article series that uh, Reuters put out looking at what was going on. And, you know, Myanmar burning was the name of the whole uh, uh, collection of articles. So I just worked with Steve on one and, and in specific, you know, it was a, a small bit. He really focused on the, on the Facebook side and I was able to work with him looking at um, some things related to essentially not say, Hey, Facebook wasn't alone in this. And so I did my thing at that time, looking at uh, the role of, a, you know, some Twitter um, activity uh, related to it. Um, but we can't get away from it is, is that, the issue of algorithms of, you know, basically advertising based social platforms. Ultimately, some of our challenges is, is that, you know, thinking through the solutions of how we're going to, you know, deal with these problems are contradictory to business models. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't have the answer to that, but yeah, without question, um, it, it's something we've got to continue to have a, a real adult conversation around, around if we don't want to continue to get, uh, continually be exploited. John, a question that yeah. um, many of our participants on our, on our OSINT courses always ask us is, as analysts, when is the right time to stop collecting information and then start analyzing it? And I was just wondering, you know, given your specific area of specialism, it yeah. must be a particularly difficult challenge, especially if you present with overwhelming levels of potential disinformation out there. So how do you go about making that call? So, you know, usually I've got a standard joke now, Mark, it's like we're not playing Pokemon, so we're not trying to catch them all. Um, so sometimes, you know, we've got a, you know, I think we've also, you know, when we, we've gotten really hung up on this notion, this love affair of big data. Um, and times don't really define what big data is and what big data need, means is that, you know, what am I researching? Why am I researching? And sometimes just small slices of data is a, is a big help, right? Like I have this thing is like, what am I seeing? Why am I seeing it? And, you know, like, I guess, why am I doing this? You know, if, if I'm analyzing, you know, what is it I'm analyzing it? Why am I analyzing it? And, you know, if I'm a researcher in the open source intelligence space, I'm doing, an, you know, analysis, I'm an analyst. You know, at some point I've got to put forward some <laughs> analysis. I got to put forward a report that in theory should, you know, result in some action being taken. You know, so I, I would think that in the context of the you know folks you're working with, this isn't an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at some point you have to realize that this is a dynamic space. It's not static. But if you don't stop at some point and, you know, start reading the tea leaves and go, this is 
a rabbit hole I don't need to go down, or this is one there's enough signals that I need to explore more. But I think actually, in some ways, the more you, the more data you gather, um, the harder you're actually sometimes making your job. Yeah, totally yeah. true. I mean, I mean, in, in the work you've done on um, the Russian uh, disinformation campaigns that you, you talked about earlier, I mean, mm. you, you came up with a, a number of key narratives there, didn't you? Um, that yeah. You identified as part of that yeah. research. I mean, where, how did you figure out how to stop? Was it that you didn't find any more narratives or those yeah. you found that the, all the information you were finding was kind of gravitating towards those four or three themes or four themes or what was I the mean, decision-making process yeah, there? Well, in the context of that, project because in essence it was a, a bit of an academic exercise yeah. um you know you know we did agree that you know we were going to collect you know data um over a set period of time and just accept that that was our pool of data and that's what we were going to deal with you know and so again you know i think i'll circle back to you know comment you made earlier is that uh and again i don't want to totally belabor um the the twitter thing but if we're looking at Hashtags, for instance, we can see how sometimes conversations change, morph, or how there's adjacent hashtags, or sometimes, you know, I've seen cases where hashtags, you know, been misspelled, um, and that moves a conversation <laughs> yeah. in a different direction. And so, right, you know, right. again, I, I think sometimes, you know, more isn't always better. And the timeline of, you know, why am I researching, you know, is this a campaign or is this a specific, you know, story that's happening right now? You know, I was thinking about this is that, you know, it really comes in terms of, you know, knowing your information space and, you know, there's no point in chasing down, you know, a rabbit hole that really isn't related to, to your space. Like, you know, if I'm an analyst and I'm operating in a, a specific, shall we say, vertical, if it's something finance related, you know, then I'm going to continue to chase down something that is related to to my space. But, you know, going down rabbit holes that are completely unrelated because that's where your data is taking you, then are you really doing your job? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and just following on from that, I guess you've already partly answered this, but I was going to ask you as, as someone who's been working in this field for, for quite a number of years now, could you give us your three top tips for detecting disinformation, yeah. John? I know you've already, yeah. you've already kind of given us one there in terms of knowing your information environment. Yeah. Um, what other things would you would you recommend, uh-huh. whether it's um, using a specific tool or using a specific method or just having a critical eye or anything like that? What, what do you think? Uh-huh. You know, so again, you know, one of my my real interests, obviously, is the on, in terms of the foreign interference, foreign influence, and so I sort of look at things through a narrative lens. Is you know, is a headline, is a story, um, fitting in with a classic, you know, uh, anti EU, uh, an anti NATO, um, mm-hmm. a supporting traditional values, which we've seen in some. <laughs> Uh, things uh, evolving lately, you know, is it, you know, um, you know, sort of that color revolution? I mean, mm-hmm. think through, um, you know, it from that strate- strategic narrative perspective is is really what I'm uh, I'm looking at. So rather than being a tool centric part of it is, is like um, I'm looking in places where I'm seeing specific kinds of headlines um, mm-hmm. and I'm asking myself, you know, why am I seeing this? Where else am I seeing it? Um, and then, you know, sort of I have some tools that I started finding quite useful. Um, you know, I know I find myself trying to use a lot more um, 
you know, sort of information security related, you know, like I'm looking at the, like, so what I sort of call the discipline, not I, but collectively some of us, you know, are looking at this as this sort of marriage of, of misinformation slash disinformation and information security right. and uh, applying best practices there. And, and so, so in terms of the three things, like I, it's been interesting thinking through this idea that I've been reading more about the idea of defending forward. Um, and so I talked about like knowing your information space, you know, know where you're operating in. Also know your adversaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think at times we fall into this trap of, you know, we see the world through our own lens. Um, how much homework are we doing to really appreciate and understand um, the worldview of how our adversaries see the world? Um, and I think that's really important, you know, as a, as an analyst, as a researcher in this space is, you know, um, <laughs> know your adversary um, and also know where you're vulnerable, you know, know your own vulnerabilities. Um, you know, what, might be out there that you've got that could be publicly that could be turned around, uh, taken out of context, um, used against you. Um, you know, so I, I think that not just knowing your own space, but knowing what you may be as an organization, you as a person, you, um, you know, have got out there possibly in the public domain already that could be um, used against you or, you know, um, if things have been hacked, what, what kind of documents have been hacked that might be able to be used <laughs> against you? I still think hack, hack and leak is a big thing. And, and ultimately, you know, I, I think um, in this space that, um, you know, prepare for the worst, you know? Um, yeah. So like, like I said, expand the perimeter, um, look at things through the narrative, um, and, you know, in all fairness, by the time something is hit Twitter and you're starting to take notice of something evolving on Twitter that has got you concerned, you're already potentially screwed. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other thing, too, that we, you know, we need to recognize is, is the best campaigns, are the ones nobody knows about. Right. Um, really good operators. Um, you know, it's boring from, uh, you know, Clint Watts notion of uh, advanced persistent manipulators. You know, the, I think our adversaries we need to be the most concerned about, you know, they operate in a manner of a long timeline. You know, they're on a potentially government payroll of some kind. Um, and so they can be patient. And also to always remember, too, is that great disinformation is always wrapped. You know, it, it, there's a kernel of truth to it. Right. That's what makes it even harder to detect, right? Yeah, Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we all know uh, disinformation is certainly not uh, going away anytime soon. And obviously, in the next few months, we've got some big elections um, oh. coming up, of which, of course, um, this whole topic area could play a part. Just with one eye on those, John, and also yeah. uh, further into the future. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you see as, as the future of disinformation and how, how might the tactics of those who spread information evolve over the over the, the coming years. Yeah. Have you got any insights yeah. on that? Well, I try to put my cheery, pessimistic, <laughs> you know, I'm cheerily pessimistic as I suggested to a friend right. of mine. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I don't think it's a rosy future, Mark. Uh, right. 
you know, so I think, you know, some of the things, you know, we have to acknowledge, like, you know, there's just flat out more going to be outsourcing of disinfo for higher firms. You know, I'm also curious as to how some of the private military contractors might be operating in this space. You know, I mean, there's a direct suggestion, obviously, the connection between the um, gentleman who's oversees uh, IRA and his involvement in the Wagner group is um, I think publicly acknowledged. So beyond the Wagner group, you know, what other private military contractors are operating and how are they operating in the, in the information space as well, other than just, you know, sort of um, PR and communication firms that, um, you know, want to dabble in the uh, dark arts uh, and profit from it. You know, and I think in the near term, one of the things without question, you know, there's no shortage of conversation around, you know, deep fakes. Um, but I'm actually really concerned around, you know, uh, cheap fakes. Right. Um, and so rather than deep fake video, um, you know, I have some concerns about the, uh, you know, potential, obviously, to um, uh, spoof audio. Cheap fakes meaning, um, you know, deep fakes that are basically lower, lower quality. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think back to the, um, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi video that, um, you know, rolled out there a number of months ago, somebody just slowed the video down to make it look like right. she was slurring her speech and make her look like she was drunk. Um, yeah. you know, so that wasn't, you know, um, I, I, I think a, a great technological, uh, uh, leap to use that, you know, so I, I think that bad actors, people with bad intent, you know, they're going to look for, you know, cheap, easy ways to, um, you know, to, to operate versus, you know, things are going to take a long timeline and a certain amount of investment to, to try to, um, to, to execute on. Um, you know, one of my big things I don't think we look enough at at times is the impact of memes, you know, mimetic warfare. Um, and if we think about them, you know, as a, as a, as a cultural artifact related to levels of, of literacy, you know, one of my things is that has been a bit of a bugaboo for quite some time for me is that, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, digital literacy, media literacy. We need to elevate just media literacy levels, um, mm -hmm. period. You know, why do memes work? Well, I think that there's a direct tie to, you know, their impact and at times, um, you know, literacy levels. I don't have to read at a university level to get a meme. And then there's the attribution side of memes, too. There's no shortage of meme generators out there. And so if you think about the ability to quickly produce memes and put them in places like Pinterest, put them in Reddit, put them in the chans, to me, those are like these, um, again, assets that you can just put into the battlefield and let people pick up and, and use and spread and move them into other places. So um, I, I think a lot more research and a lot more conversation uh, in the near future uh, needs to focus on memes. You know, I know that you yourself, uh, I did listen to one of your, uh, few of your other podcasts. So, I mean, the whole notion of, um, like the private messaging, uh, encrypted apps. I mean, there's a big concern about how obviously information is going to move through there. And then the other one too, you know, if we think about platforms beyond social media, um, what about things like in the gaming space? Uh, you know, if we think about, you know, the different channels, um, the different ways that, you know, Online gaming can be a source to, again, uh, change context, uh, potentially plant disinformation. I think that that could be a place we've got to think about. Lately, I've seen, you know, we've got now the self-serving advertising platforms coming into the streaming um, TV video uh, world. Um, you know, if we're worried about self-serve ads, you know, being placed, um, 
then this could be another surface that we should be concerned about. You know, then I connect this whole space to, you know, uh, the malign financing, you know, um, how are things, you know, happening in terms of manipulating information to, um, you know, help fund more disinformation. Um, mm-hmm. How about things like, you know, uh, virtual game currency being used to money laundering vehicle? Another one I've gone, oh, what about mapping technology? How could that be exploited? You know, part of me has gone, hmm, what could happen on voting day if suddenly, you know, places where people might need to go vote are misrepresented in some of the mapping technology platforms? Don't know how that could happen, but it's something I've thought about. So ultimately, Mark, I think that, you know, there are a lot of potential (laughs) vulnerable surfaces where people with bad intent will... Um, continue to go, to continue to exploit. And again, you know, it really comes back to it. I think we've got to expand sort of our definition and, and vision of, of, you know, how we see the information space. And our information space is way more than Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, and, you know, it's more than a social media issue. So that's really Alar- Alarmingly, John, the uh, possibilities <laughs> for this type of thing are endless, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but- but I think that brings an end uh, to our podcast, John. So um, thanks, John, for coming to the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating. Just to remind our audience there, for any ocean analysts out there, I really recommend using John's tool, Mention Map. It's a, really it's a great tool for mapping out your Twitter networks, and it's something, as John said previously, that we've, here, we've used here in James for our own OSINT investigations. So please do check that out. It's mentionmap.com. And hopefully we can get you back on the pod uh, after the U.S. election to see how it's all worked out, right? Oh, that'll be a yeah, that'll be a conversation for another day for sure, Mark. And yeah, yeah you know, I'd I'd love to join you again. And thanks for the opportunity. And hey, just one little quick thing: that's a mention map with two P's at the end. But uh, cool. yeah, thanks again, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training.